hey, this is a big deal and it is a legal issue. It is not just an IT problem. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we wrote about the latest experiment from the private messaging app Signal and how it led to Facebook banning Signal's ads on Instagram. First, Signal is earning a reputation for itself as the private messaging app. It's end-to-end encrypted, which should be the standard. It has twice told the government that it cannot comply with data requests, as it claims it does not ever record that data. And it is praised by big names in privacy, like Bruce Schneier and Laura Poitras. Signal also takes a dim view of any company harnessing user data for ad-driven profit, which leads us to Signal's experiment. By using Facebook's own advertising tools, Signal designed an online ad to be shown on Instagram, which Facebook owns. The ad was programmed to show the viewer information about themselves that Facebook makes available to other advertisers to target those users with. It's (laughs) admittedly complicated, so let's break it down. The information that Facebook knows about you, your age, your interests, your political beliefs, it uses that information to let advertisers target you with ads. On Facebook, advertisers don't buy your data. They buy access to your data, allowing them to pinpoint which groups of people are most likely to purchase their products. What Signal did is it tried to build a tool that would show the average Instagram user what Facebook knew about them and how that information allowed them to be targeted by certain ads. The ads were going to be simple sentences with key aspects changed for users. Uh, For example, you got this ad because you're a goth barista and you're single. This ad used your location to see you're in Clinton Hill. And you're either vegan or lactose intolerant. And you're really feeling that yoga lately. Another one. You got this ad because you're a newlywed Pilates instructor and you're cartoon crazy. This ad used your location to see you're in La Jolla. You're into parenting blogs and you're thinking about LGBTQ adoption. The ads were banned by Facebook, so users never got a chance to see what their favorite platforms know about them while browsing them, which is a shame because some of this info is deeply personal and we should know how it is used. As for Signal, they're probably trying to work out what they got wrong about the whole truth will set you free thing. We also told readers about new recommendations to limit the damage and severity of global ransomware attacks. Published by the Ransomware Task Force, think tank of more than 60 volunteer experts at organizations including Microsoft, Cisco, FireEye, the FBI, and more, the recommendations ask that companies and governments across the world unite towards a collective anti-ransomware campaign. And if ever the time was right, it is now. According to the task force, 2020 was a brutal year for ransomware victims. The average ransom payment made was north of $312,000, which represents a 171% increase from the year prior. The average downtime from a ransomware attack was 21 days, and the average time to recover fully from an attack was nine months. To help stop these trends, 
The Ransomware Task Force proposed several recommendations, including international coordination, which is vital because ransomware operators currently work out of countries that turn a blind eye to their crimes. The task force also recommended that ransomware victims be required to report their attacks, that greater emphasis is placed on intelligence-driven anti-ransomware efforts, that governments create cyber response and recovery funds for victims, that cryptocurrency receives tighter regulations, and that a framework be established for how organizations can prepare for and respond to a ransomware attack. There is little to joke about here. And in fact, the ways in which organizations respond to ransomware attacks relates directly to our lead story. Our main story today concerns ransomware attacks that become data breaches. In 2020, the cybersecurity community noticed a worrying trend from ransomware operators. No longer satisfied with just demanding a ransom payment to unlock their victims' encrypted files, some ransomware gangs employed a new device to squeeze their targets. After initially breaching a business, they would pilfer sensitive data and then threaten to publish it online. This is what we at Malwarebytes refer to as the double extortion model, in which ransomware operators can hit the same target two times over, saying, we've not only locked your files, which will cost money to decrypt, we've also stolen your data, which will cost money to keep private. These double extortion attacks are devastating for any business. And in 2020, they surged in popularity, used by the ransomware gangs behind Maze, Klopp, Ragnar Locker, and R. Evil. In fact, according to a March analysis from the cybersecurity company F-Secure, nearly 40% of the ransomware families discovered in 2020, as well as several older families, demonstrated data exfiltration capabilities by year's end. And almost half of those families used those capabilities in the wild. What we're going to learn about today, though, is that this threat doesn't stop there. For companies hit with these attacks, not only do they often rebuild their databases, not only can they lose weeks of work, not only are their reputations pummeled if their sensitive data is published online, but depending on how much data is leaked and what kind, they could also get into legal trouble. And that's because in the United States, when data is stolen and then leaked online, each and every single state, yes, all 50 of them have laws in place about how a company should report and respond to the attack. That means notifying the victims of the breach, maybe notifying a state's attorney general, and doing it in the required time. For companies that have customers across the entire country, that becomes a headache real quick. Today, to help us understand the legal threat that businesses face in a ransomware turned data breach attack, and to walk us through some of those state laws, how they came about, why there are 50 instead of one, we're speaking with Jake Bernstein, a Seattle-based cybersecurity and privacy attorney. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. This is great. Jake, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure thing. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm a cybersecurity and privacy attorney here in Seattle, Washington. I've been practicing for going on 15 years. The first half of my career was as a regulator at the Washington State Attorney General's office, where I primarily focused on consumer protection issues that evolved into cybersecurity and privacy issues. In fact, the very topic that we are discussing today, the, the 
attorney general notification requirements. That's something that I dealt with on the other side as an assistant attorney general. And then uh, since about 2015, I have been in private practice where my focus has been on advising clients on cybersecurity and privacy issues, doing incident response, doing proactive consulting and counseling under attorney-client privilege, and then as well a lot of a lot of doing this, trying to get the get the message out there that hey, this is a big deal and it is a legal issue. It is not just an IT problem. Let's get right into it. The hybrid ransomware data breach attack is a recent phenomenon. Like I said, at Malwarebytes, we've only seen it increase in frequency in the past year. But from your perspective, right, as an attorney, what is the scope of this problem? And so I'm curious, you know, is there an increase in the number of clients? Is there an increase in the number of clients asking about it or, or even those hit with this problem? So the bottom line is yes to all of those questions. The number of, is going up. The number of clients that are concerned about it is going up. I worked a ransomware late in 2020, and the incident response company that we partnered with basically said that, in their experience, more ransomware attacks than not are this kind of double model, the double mm-hmm. ransom model that you're discussing here. And that was really interesting to me. So from a legal perspective, there's actually two ways of looking at this. One is, this is nothing new, because, for example, under HIPAA, which is a federal law, and it is, in a sense, a national data breach notification law, yep. it's just limited to the medical sector. There is no need necessarily to you know experience exfiltration in order to have to notify. The reason for that is that there's really, and, and expanding beyond HIPAA, there's really two different models that we see in the law regarding notification of breaches. One is the one is obviously the exfiltration model. That's where you know you don't have to notify of a breach, or more accurately, there isn't a quote breach unless there's exfiltration. And we can talk about well, we will be talking about the ramifications of that definition later on in the show. The second model, though, is really interesting, and that is the, call it the, the potential breach. The, the wording varies, but the idea is if someone had access to or could have exfiltrated, that itself is enough to be considered a breach. And if you think about what that means, that means that even basic, you know, ye old ransomware that didn't have any exfiltration capabilities at all still counted as a breach. So what's different now is the bad guys are explicitly often saying, we're going to make you pay twice. Or what's also common is, oh, you have a backup solution. Well, that's okay, because we ha- we took your data and, we'll get, and we will go ahead and make it public as well. So you should pay us for that instead. So it's kind of a, it's like their own backup solution for the, uh, the blackmail when their initial kind of primary attempt fails. Moving back here, for a company hit with one of these attacks, right? The ransomware turned data breach attack. How difficult is it for them to analyze what has actually been stolen, right? Because I think there is... For folks who who don't do this work, maybe there's a misunderstanding that it's really obvious to see what's been stolen. You know, comparing it maybe to like getting something stolen from your car, getting something stolen from your home, which is a terrible event, right? But you can see immediately, okay, the laptop's gone, the TV's gone. Is it that simple for a company trying to understand what's been taken in one of these types of attacks? It's not. I would analogize. So in the physical space, imagine that 
your wife or girlfriend has a, a huge box of jewelry, or maybe you have a huge box of jewelry, and some of the stuff is missing, but not all of it. How difficult would it be for you to immediately identify what's missing from a box of jewelry, right? Probably not that simple. But, and you can see where I'm going with this, it depends on your records and how careful you are. If you have a box of jewelry that is carefully split up and labeled, and there is little compartments for every pair of earrings, every necklace, every ring, then identifying what's missing might be fairly simple, right? It might be as obvious as as the laptop or the TV is missing. On the other hand, if like many people, you have a uh, a jewelry box with a you know a mess of stuff inside of it, figuring out what's missing could be very difficult indeed. And that is often the case <laughs> with data breaches. Is first of all, you have to step back and ask, can we even access the data? Or is it encrypted to the point where we don't even know all of the information that's been touched? Now, you know, if you have a backup, maybe you can tell. You're always going to know generally what's in there, but that's a little bit like saying, yeah, that jewelry box had jewelry. Like, that's not super helpful. Yes, the database had data. Okay. (laughs) Um, What are you going to do with that? So the answer is, is, you know, yeah, it is difficult. And a lot of the times what I've seen happen is the company has to kind of do an educated guess based off the type of data that that it has but there's not it's not easy and i think that in fact one of the things that takes the longest and this kind of hits on to the next question here is it isn't just a legal or it problem oftentimes you need to bring in a whole mess of people throughout the company to figure out what you have in there cuz it may not know right and I'm glad you brought it up with our next question here, which is, I was primarily interested in this because, uh, from my understanding, what has been stolen dovetails with whether or not, you know, one of these data breach notification laws actually gets triggered, right? Help us understand what these data breach notification laws are. You know, just just what are they in a, in a broad sense? And also just how long have we had them? So... The answer is 20 plus years for a lot of these. These are some of the older data security statutes. They're not new. There are, as you pointed out, there are close to 50 of them. The problem with these data breach statutes is that there are at least a half dozen, if not more, variations on PII, personally identifiable information. And you know, as an aside, I don't like that term anymore because it's it's being it's being phased out. I actually much prefer GDPR's personal data definition and and phrase. California CCPA uses personal information. It's fine. It's a little too close to the old personally identifiable information. And the reason that this matters is that when you dig into these older data breach notification laws, what you find is that just losing information about a person may not actually constitute a, quote, data breach under the law. And Here's some concrete examples. So in most of these, in most states today, losing my first name, last name, and email address, it's not a data breach. Usually you need something more. You need some combination of first name, last name, and then some more private identifier. You know, consider the social security number, driver license number, account number, or a password. A lot of states, including my own uh, home state of Washington, have 
recently amended their data breach notification laws to include a set of credentials, so an email and an and a account, some form of account name, usually an email, plus the password. That also counts as a, quote, data breach. But it is not straightforward necessarily at all to, to know whether or not the information that you possibly, but you may not know, has been stolen is enough to meet the definition of data breach. So this is why it requires an attorney to be involved, because you have to go through and determine, okay, what did we lose? Is the information that we lost enough to constitute a data breach with the few variations across the country? And then do we know if we lost it? Or do we simply suspect that we did? Or do we have, and this is the most common, or do we have no actual information whatsoever other than that we know the bad guys got in and encrypted our materials? It's a major pain. It absolutely sounds like it. And as you were talking about how you know, there are a lot of places where if you lose your first name, if a company loses, let's say my first name, last name, and email, that doesn't constitute as a data breach. How different are the definitions of a data breach within these state laws? And, and I'm looking for any major discrepancies. You know, is there anything where when you're advising a client, it's always like, ah, but you, you gotta watch out for Tennessee, you know, something like that, where... My goodness, you know, we, we haven't standardized it. Uh, does does yeah. that exist? The closest you can get is is GDPR, but that's over in Europe, as, as, as people know. In the U.S., there's a whole lot of slight variation. I wouldn't say there's anything that's like a major, oh my gosh, you have to be careful, other than CCPA and now the Virginia, the new Virginia Data Privacy Act, possibly Florida, depending upon if they actually pass something. This is a tough time to answer that question because it's rapidly changing. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get to California's data privacy law later if we have the time, right? But something I also wanted to find out here is um, what do the laws make you do? What am I required to do if I do suffer a data breach, you know, as defined by these laws? I, do I have to tell people about it? Do I have to tell law enforcement about it? What is it? So you have to tell the victims pretty much universally. There really, there's not a single state law that I'm aware of where you don't have to tell the people affected by the breach. Mm. So that one, that part's easy. Where it gets very complicated very quickly is who else you have to notify and whether or not there's a threshold. So just off the top of my head, there are states where if you have to notify one, one citizen, we're just going to use citizen as kind of a proxy for someone who lives in a given jurisdiction. If you have to tell at least one citizen, there are states where you also have to tell the attorney general of that state. There's no threshold. Then there are a whole lot of states where the threshold might be 250, 500, 1,000, or 2,000. Those are kind of common numbers. And if you meet that threshold, then you have to notify the attorney general of that state. There are also states where, again, usually threshold-based, and it's higher, 2,000, 5,000, something like that, where if you meet that threshold, you have to also notify the three credit reporting bureaus, which is an extra step that is not universal across the country. And a lot of the times, in terms of what you have to do, we've all gotten data breach notification letters or emails some states have a form that you have to follow. Some states don't. Some states dictate that you have to describe in detail what happened. Some states don't. It's changing 
For example, here in Washington, there was an amendment in the last couple of years to the data breach notification statute that I think really added quite a lot of the burden when there's a data breach to explain what happened and explain what you're going to do so it doesn't happen again. So there is unfortunately a lot of variation here. This is an area where there probably shouldn't be as much variation, though I don't see a unified law being passed anytime soon. Gosh, yeah. And I'm sure it's such a headache for everyone that's had to go through this. I wanted to ask, do we have any ballparks on what the compliance of this cost? Because as you said, this is more than just the IT team. This is more than a company's you know, legal department, if they have one, right? If they've matured enough to, to have a general counsel or an, uh, you know, an associate general counsel, this is the IT team, this is the lawyers, this is probably a lot more folks. So is there just a ballpark on, on the number of you know, even person hours or actual dollars spent on complying with this after an attack? It really varies. I would say that it, I mean, so first of all, it depends on the, the number of records, right? That's going to be, that's going to play a big role. But I mean, yes, as we talked about, it does take a lot more than just a legal team, just a compliance team, or even just IT. It takes it can take a lot of people to figure out what could be missing or what is missing or what may have been stolen, etc. And in terms of a ballpark, I mean, I've seen it cost anywhere from, you know, just a few thousand dollars because there's very it's a very small breach in a small company and like the owner does the work. And I've seen it cost tens of thousands bleeding into hundreds of thousands. Uh, so it is it's extremely variable. The answer is it's expensive. Whether and, <laughs> and it's and it's gonna be expensive and it's see so first of all it's relative, right? And that makes it hard to give an exact figure. But I can tell you this in my experience, without insurance, it is expensive no matter who you are, right? It's gonna be expensive. And and think about this. Let's just say that you're a big enough company where you have, you know, two hundred thousand customers, and the the data breach notification law in this instance requires you to send uh, a letter in the mail, right? Even mm. at bulk rates, even just postage is a non insignificant figure uh, as a cost, right? Just postage. Think about that. And so the numbers can get very high very quickly. One of the reasons it's so important to be insured is that oftentimes the insurance will cover the the notification costs. Is this data breach insurance, uh, cybersecurity event insurance? What kind of insurance are we talking about? So it depends. Usually, I mean, these days it's almost always a, a... a more dedicated cybersecurity data breach type insurance product. Um, Rarely do fully generic policies these days cover these types of events. Uh, I would talk to a broker. You were mentioning how, you know, on on the low end, small company, owner does all the work themselves. It can cost less money, right? But it's obviously relative. What I'm curious about here, though, is is there any exception to these laws based on a company's size or age? Because when I hear about an owner having to do all this work themselves, it sounds kind of unfair compared to a enormous company having a large team that can spend the hours on this, can hire maybe a more expensive attorney or team of attorneys, 
And I'm thinking, you know, I live in San Francisco. We're becoming part. We are part of Silicon Valley. There's so many startups here. One person, two person, three person startups. And sometimes they grow really, really quickly. They have a massive number of users. And I'm wondering, how is it fair that a three person team has to deal with this? with limited resources. So are there exceptions to these laws based on, again, like I said, size or age? So the answer is yes and no, or it depends, is the favored lawyer answer. (laughs) Right, Um, right. When it comes to the newer laws like CCPA or the New York Shield Act, there are threshold minimums for size, revenue, number of customers, things like that. But those are really for the even more, like even more modern, privacy right type of of laws. When you look at the data breach notification laws, the answer is really no. And let me flip your question on its head and ask you this. Is it fair for a small company to gather all of this personal data and then not have to protect it or not have a consequence if they they lose control? I mean, these startups oftentimes are, you know, what if it's a medical information startup? Like, Mm. as a user... I don't care that you have three people on staff. You took, you know, you you asked for my medical information and I trusted you with it. So suck it up, Buttercup. You're going to have to <laughs> deal with this with this situation if you couldn't protect it. That's another way of looking at it. Yeah, and it's a good way to look at it, I think, because you put it into perspective there. If you're on the receiving end of one of these attacks, right? We don't care. Like, we, we don't care if you're a three-person team or a 3,000-person team. Uh, we care that, that there was possibly some negligence or possibly just some bad behavior in, in protecting our information. We've been talking about the California CCPA, the, the California, I believe it's Consumer Privacy Act. I sometimes switch them up a lot. And that was passed like a year and a half ago, went into effect, I believe, at the start of January of 2020. But like I said, we've been talking about it a lot. And as you said recently, it is different than the strict data breach notification laws. Can you tell me about how the CCPA intersects with data breaches and and how does it differ? So the main way that the CCPA deals with data breaches is by providing a private cause of action to allow individuals and class action lawyers to sue companies and it provides a statutory damage amount of $750 per record. So that's pretty devastating if you think about it. That's the single biggest way that it changes. It's the only private right of action in the CCPA, even though the CCPA is far more known for you know, the substantive privacy rights that it grants, such as you know, the right to the so-called right to deletion or right to be forgotten, the right to access, right to right to be free of discrimination in data processing matters. So that, you know, it's a big law. The data breach component is relatively small, but it's also where the kind of rubber hits the road in terms of private enforcement. That's the single most important thing. Interestingly enough, the definition of data breach gets a little fuzzy because there's two different there's there's the CCPA definition of personal information and then there's the older California data breach law which has its own kind of definition of data breach and maybe this is what you were really getting at with the fairness aspect whereas everyone is subject to the data breach notification law there's no there's no private cause of action you can't get sued under the data breach notification statute in California whereas you can be sued under CCPA but the CCPA has 
thresholds. Like you have to you have to have an annual revenue of at least twenty five million, or you have to collect the personal information of fifty thousand or more California you know individuals or households, or more than half of your revenue has to come from selling data. So if you don't meet any of those thresholds, then you're only dealing with the data breach notification law. As we're talking about laws that aren't the data breach notification laws, I think it's a good opportunity to move to something else that happened that could still get folks in trouble, um, but is not related. You know, it is not strictly a data breach notification law, which is that in October of 2020, right last year, the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, long name there, they warned businesses to avoid paying ransomware demands that could be paid to an entity or person under U.S. sanctions. How big of a risk is this to a business? So this OFAC memo, that's what we usually call it, was a really big deal in October. The funny thing about it is that there was actually nothing new in that memo at all. It, it was truly a reminder. And the law didn't change. So nothing happened in October of 2020. It wasn't necessarily interpreted that way by a lot of people in the industry, but legally nothing had really changed. And, you know, it is a risk. It's maybe a bigger risk to third parties that facilitate ransomware payments. And I think that really was the focus of the OFAC memo was not so much telling individual victims you know, reminding them of their responsibilities, but it, so much as it was, hey, if your business model is based on paying, you know, helping people pay ransoms, you know, be aware that we can come after you if you're doing that to a sanction, if you're paying to a sanctioned, you know, individual or group. And it's important. The memo really said, hey, talk to law enforcement, you know, get us, bring us in, involve us. We need to we need to know what's going on. We need private sector assistance in order to get information in order to track down bad guys. That said, there's a, a, there remains a fair amount of confusion over it. It is a risk factor, and it's so case by case dependent that I, it's impossible to kind of give any any generic advice about it. Other than it has definitely made it harder to get help paying a ransom than it used to be. Yeah, I thought it was particularly difficult as well because something at Malwarebytes, right, that I've seen is that uh, sometimes it is near impossible to attribute an attack to, uh, right, to a nation state, to even a group of actors. And it sounded like it would be really hard to be told, hey, make sure that you're not paying these entities that that are sanctioned by the U.S. when I'm like, well, how do I know? You know, if, if it's so hard to find out who's even responsible for an attack, how am I supposed to know whether they are also included in a, in, a, in a sanctions list, right? And like you said, it sounds here like OFAC was really just looking for, we need some partnership. We need more insight into what's going on out there in the field because we can't see everything. We've talked a lot about, you know, what could happen, what might happen. But it's always good to sometimes just get an example to really sink our teeth into. Can you give us an example of when one of these, you know, ransomware turned data breach attacks actually triggered a, a state's data breach notification law? I mean, so I, obviously I can't provide specific names, but I will tell you that of the last half dozen ransomware incidents I've covered, all of them 
had a, had a state data breach notification issue. And the reason is that it kind of goes back to the way we started this conversation, which is because there are the laws that don't care about actual exfiltration, when you don't know, you have to assume breach. So what that means is that, you know, by definition, by simple definition, a ransomware attack means that a unauthorized person or group has gained sufficient access to your system to encrypt a file system, right? And if they can do that, they have circumvented the security controls and that's enough. That right there is enough to constitute a breach of a security system with or without exfiltration. And so a lot of these customer, a lot of these clients of mine at least, all it takes is a national company and you're going to be dealing with you're, you're going to be dealing with the with data breach notification laws. So I would say that it really hasn't changed the response that much because you have to do it. We've always had to do this anyway with almost every ransomware attack. What it has changed is the calculus over the potential of actually having information publicly released and that whole that whole issue. So. Yes, it has changed. I personally, I really look at this more of a as more of a business model evolution of the bad guys, as opposed to any real significant change in notification requirements. Because, like you said, a successful ransomware attack, you know, by definition, it means that it means that you know threat actors, cyber criminals, have penetrated a system, and therefore a data breach could be possible, which therefore triggers data breach notification laws. Does that mean that like almost any kind of cyber attack would also, in theory, trigger data breach notification laws in some states? Uh, it could. I mean, it really depends on the type of cyber attack, right? I mean, yeah. right now, you often break them. So like, a D, here, let's take another example, a DDoS, a distributed denial of service attack. That is a type of cyber attack that can be really annoying, if not potentially devastating to a customer, but it is not one that involves a potential data breach because, again, by definition, you know they're hammering a server to bring it down. It's not about getting in. So the legal question is, was there unauthorized access and or some level of control exercised over the network system? If so, yeah, same analysis, probably a, you know, a data breach with or without exfiltration. On the other hand, there are examples of types of attacks where there is no actual, there's no infiltration at all, which means that there can't be exfiltration. Yeah. To wrap it up here, right, we've talked a lot about the differences between some of these laws, sometimes how they, they do sync up often, right? But sometimes even there's, you know, reporting requirement differences based on on a, on a threshold, right? 500 folks affected in a state, uh, 1,000, 2,000. It all sounds kind of like a headache, you know, for any business having to go through it. So why don't we have one federal law instead? And you said early at the show that you also don't anticipate we're going to have one anytime soon. So it's a two-part question here. Why do we not have that? And two, why don't you think one's going to come anytime soon? So why we don't have one is, I think, that's not, I don't necessarily have a good answer for that. Why we won't have one, the, I mean, the answer right now is because our national politics are dysfunctional, no, no, matter, no matter what side you <laughs> identify with. Um, 
It really is that simple. Uh, this should be a bipartisan, non-political issue. I think that uh, we are likely to see broader federal action on a much kind of larger so-called omnibus privacy type statute before we kind of go into the data breach issue. I will point out, though, that the way things stand right now is kind of how our federal our federalist system is designed to work. This is the whole laboratory of democracy in practice, where the whole reason that we have the federal government and then ever smaller government bodies from state to county to city, you know, et cetera, is that it allows us to experiment with policy. And, you know, there obviously was a time when just a handful of states had data breach notification laws. The best I can tell you is that it hasn't reached a point where enough people think it needs a federal law, whether from lobbyists, because no one's really asking for one, or legislators who feel that it's necessary. You know, the states have it covered, in other words. The fact that it's a pain is probably not... I mean, you'd think that would mobilize industry, but it hasn't to the point... They haven't... I mean. Maybe it has, maybe it hasn't, but whatever it's, you know, nothing's happening still. So, (laughs) right, right. There's a, there's a a chasm between folks wanting to get something done and on the other side, you know, our federal government having the, the appetite to get that thing done. Um, Yep. That's, that's the country. There we go. (laughs) It is. And I think too, the other problem with this specific issue is that, you know, pre GDPR, you know, maybe we could have gotten a national data breach notification law in place, but that's impossible now because no one's going to waste their time with just a data breach notification statute. Like whatever happens at the federal level, it's going to be more CCPA GDPR like. That's my prediction. Right, right. Just big, broad, let's get it all done in one fell swoop rather than piecemeal. Jake, I wanted to just thank you again so much for being on the show today. Uh, no problem. I, it's my pleasure. Um, happy to do it. To our listeners at home. We'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with cybersecurity and privacy advocate Carrie Parker about dark patterns, which are subtle design changes that often lead users to make adverse decisions about their own privacy online. How can we spot these? Whose responsibility is it to fix them? And what can the industry do to better inform users? Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all of our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.